Well, first of all, uh, welcome uh, to this, I think, fourth of the public lectures in the, in the summer school over the, over the six weeks of summer school here at the LSE. Uh, let me firstly introduce myself, and then I'll introduce our guest speaker. Uh, first of all, I'll tell you who I am. Uh, my name is Mick Cox, as you can see. That's me behind. I've been at the LSE for the last... Uh, 12 years uh, in the International Relations Department, uh, but over the last few years I've been director, co-director, founding co-director, and now director again, uh, never get paid, but it doesn't matter, uh, of uh, what is, yeah, we love titles, but they don't never pay us enough, uh, of, of, a, of a think tank here called uh, LSE uh, Ideas, which de deals with foreign policy. I've also for many years been long associated with this great institution of uh, LSE summer school, which is one of the great success stories of the school, led ably by Elizabeth Aitken, who's sitting up there in the balcony, and many, many others in her team, and it's a terrific job that they've done, and in bringing this together, I think it's another addition to, to what, the, what the school, I think, does best, which is public engagement, and public engagement across, not just to people from this country, of course, but people across the world. LSE has always been an international school, a global school, even when it was founded, even by 1910, before the First World War, 20% of its students were non-British. And that number has always remained very, very high, both from what we used to call the empire, no longer, uh, and from other parts of the world, which we now call the European Union. Anyway, so um, it's, it's great to welcome you here this evening. Uh, and, uh, and secondly, I'm even more delighted, not just to welcome you, but also delighted to welcome my old friend, uh, Jonathan Femby, uh, if you go on the sites and you look on, on the web, you'll, you'll see Jonathan everywhere. Jonathan writes on really two basic areas, and there are other important ones. And by the way, tonight, Jonathan, it's China, not France. Uh, but, but, but Jonathan has just written a, a great one-volume history of, of France. I think since the revolution has written other books on France, including a wonderful biography of the, the greatest of all Frenchmen, I'm sometimes told by my French conservative friends, named General de Gaulle. Um, but Jonathan has also developed over the years an expertise in China from a, from a long association of being a journalist there, and I think in Hong Kong, and has written the Penguin History of China. So I don't think we can have a better speaker to illuminate on some issues of what's happening in China today. What we're going to do very, very quickly is the following. I'm going to speak, hopefully, for no more than 20, 25 minutes. And if I, if I go over 25 minutes, start throwing things at me, uh, hopefully money. Um, <laughs> But if I do go over there, please, please tell me to stop, because I want to hand over then to Jonathan. We're not, in a sense, having a, an argument against one another, although we may end up doing that. I, I, let's hope so. Uh, but we'll try and keep our comments down to about 50, 55 minutes. And then we'll move into a Q&A session. The session will then conclude in and around 7 o'clock. And I'm told there, uh, there's a reception upstairs on the fifth floor uh, where, where alcohol will be consumed. And it's free. And, um, and, and for other people, and for other people, yes, thank you. There you go. <laughs> I, ha I have to... If you to want to go now, you can... Yeah, yeah, you leave now and come back with a drink. And I'll, 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 I'll take a gin and tonic, please. Um, it's the only thing at the LSE you'll ever get free, I can assure you, believe me. Um, now, the topic, uh, the topic for tonight is, 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 is what I call a slightly provocative one. When will the U.S. go to war with China? Somebody said there's two things wrong with that. First of all, it should be when the United States goes to war with China. Uh, well, I think about that one. And when will they go to war with each other? Or will they go to war at all? 
But anyway, that's the theme, that's the topic we're going to debate tonight. I'm going to go first. I'm going to speak from up here because I think you know, it's easier to speak if you're going to do that. Jonathan will do the same, and then we'll move into Q&A. So again, thanks very much for being here tonight, and here I go. Okay, thanks. How likely or probable is a great power war between any great powers now or, or in the future? More specifically, how likely is a great power war between China and the United States, whoever decides to begin such a war? Until very recently, until very recently, the answer provided, in a sense, to both questions, the first general question about great power wars and the second question about a specific great power war between China and the United States. Until very recently, the answer provided was either highly unlikely, virtually impossible, to the point of being fantastic. In other words, if you'd asked the vast array of policy analysts, IR scholars, theorists of world politics, even historians, possibly even economists, if you'd have asked them what, is, what are the chances of a great power war between any set of great powers, or particularly between China and the United States as two, two great powers, then I think the general response would have been, this is ridiculous, it's a, it's a dumb question. Uh, it's not even a question we should even be asking because even to ask the question is to be provocative. Now, why did people, until very recently at least, uh, come up with what you might call a very reassuring uh, answer to those two questions, the second question in particular about China and the United States? I think there were four broad reasons. One is to do with history. Uh, one is to do with how one thinks about great powers as rational actors. Third has to do with how one understands modern global capitalism. And the fourth part of, of, of what I would call this complacency, if, if some would call it complacency, has to do with that very simple phenomenon called nuclear weapons. Let me just deal with each of those issues uh, in turn very briefly. History. Well, uh, great power wars were normal, uh, regular, and repetitive for several hundred, possibly thousands of years in all parts of the world, and not just in Europe, but also in Asia. Yet, something rather strange has happened since the end of World War II. We haven't had one. For the last 70 years, we've had regional wars, we've had internal wars, we've had wars caused by the breakdown of states, state failures leading to terrorism, whatever. We've had small-scale wars. We've had wars which killed many people. 25 million people, after all, died in the Cold War. But we never had, and have not had since 1945, a war between the great powers, the major powers, the significant powers, as opposed to medium powers, or the breakdown or regional conflicts themselves. So people have drawn the obvious conclusion that to ask the question about is great power war likely simply ignores the last 70 years of history. And assuming that the past is a fairly good indicator 
and maybe point to, to the future, they conclude, therefore, we're going to have another 70 years or more of great power peace and, indeed, peace between the two great powers we're talking about tonight, namely China and, and the United States. This, again, comes in with a bunch of arguments about why this is unlikely. But un the, the truth of the matter is that since 45, however conflictual and dangerous and, and costly the Cold War happened to be, the, the great powers themselves never went to war. As, indeed, they had gone to war for several centuries prior to that, and particularly in the 20th century, when we experienced two great power wars, the first and the second. Even the great conflict we call the Cold War between the Soviet Union and the United States remained, as we call it, a Cold War. It was contained. Uh, it, there was elements of strong conflict. It might have gone to a war, but it never did. There was never a direct confrontation, a significant confrontation or confrontation at all, leading to that state which we call war. So we've not had one. And even in the very height of the Cold War, in the very early years, at the time of the Berlin Crisis, the time of the Cuban Missile Crisis, the time later on in the 1970s when Ronald Reagan was then elected in 1980, a very strong uh, Cold Warrior who wanted to uh, bury the evil empire, as he then called it, it never went to war. In the end, Ronald Reagan, the great ideologist of the Cold War, in the end decided to make deals with Gorbachev. So what we're looking at then is, a, is an extraordinary period of great power peace. And therefore, the conclusion to derive from history is that if the last 70 years are anything to go by, the modern world, not what happened back in the 19th or early part of the 20th century, we're bound to stay where we are. History shows that the future is peace. We're evolving in a certain direction, and that direction, whatever the limits uh, of, of this system are, however many inequalities this system generates, nonetheless, that's where we are today. We're living in a period, not a great power war, but a great power peace, and that's how it's going to stay. There must be fundamental reasons for us doing that. One of them being, possibly, that we learned from World War I and World War II, which killed over 100 million people. Therefore, why do something as dumb and as stupid and as destructive to the world again? That's the kind of art. We learn the lessons of history. John Muller a famous American political scientist once wrote a very provocative book, which a lot of people laughed at at the time, but seems now very serious, The Obsolescence of Great Power War. That was his kind of conclusion. This then leads to a second point about great powers themselves. Very briefly, great powers, whether you like them or hate them, uh, whether you can't stand them and you can't understand their language, it doesn't matter. All great powers are rational actors. That is to say... For most great powers, and certainly great powers in the modern era, peace is in their interest. And that is certainly more true today than it has ever been before. War as an instrument of rational design no longer makes sense. That's the argument being put forward here. You could have said that in the 19th century when territory was significant, or in a period of revolutionary wars such as Napoleon in the late 18th and early 19th century, or even in the 20th century, there was, you could actually argue that war between great powers had a rational dimension in terms of imperialism, in terms of territory or whatever. What is now being argued that actually the opposite is true. In the interest of great powers today and over the last 70 years, their interest lies primarily in maintaining order, in maintaining what we might loosely define as peace. In fact, China has even uh, developed a theory of its own, making the link between its own economic development on the one hand and domestic stability on the other. And it's linked both those things of stability 
and development with the idea of peace. And China, of course, from 2001, 2003 onwards, developed this view about the peaceful rise. And what China argued then, and its theoreticians from the Communist Party argued then, that the fundamentals of China's interest, the development of, of China as an economy, the development of the world economy, of which it was becoming increasingly an integrated part, that depended upon maintaining peace. So the peaceful rise itself was a theoretical rationalization of a situation which they knew was essentially in their interest over the long term. And you could even say, if you're looking at America, though it's waged many wars against many, many actors in the world, most recently against Iraq, with some fairly disastrous consequences, America, meanwhile, is becoming ever more war-averse. I mean, this goes and runs fundamentally counter to arguments you might find uh, by Noam Chomsky and another, other people like that. But you could clearly argue that far from becoming more aggressive, more likely to go to war with any other, any other system or any other power, America is becoming increasingly war-averse, especially because of Afghanistan and especially because of Iraq. Look at U.S. non-policy towards Syria. The third question, apart from whether great powers are rational actors and the whole logic of history, modern history, brings us back to the old argument about capitalism. Now, there's been a long, long debate uh, for many, many decades about whether capitalism causes war. That was once a very fashionable argument, following the theories of Mr. Lenin, or whether capitalism causes peace. Uh, now, in 1912, a lot of people thought that capitalism then would lead to peace. A man called Norman Angel, wonderful name, Dear Norman Angel made the case that uh, the development of capitalism then, or the market, was going to create the conditions of stability and order. No rational actor would go to war. Three or four years later, we had World War I. Well, what I would argue, and what a lot of people have argued, that was then. We are now a 100 years on, and the nature of global capitalism has transformed itself way beyond where we were back in 1914. It is more integrated, it is more interdependent. The level of foreign direct investment between all states, the level of global trade, the level of intercommunication at all levels has gone way beyond anything that even could have been thought about uh, back in 1910. If, in, in very simple terms, if you like, capitalism is leading. If it didn't lead before, it is now leading to peace. And that war would therefore, in this sense, be economically suicidal. We could actually formulate this in terms of a, my own formula, which is seriously original, mutually assured economic destruction. In other words, you cannot go to war with any other great power because you would economically be destroying yourself. So it's not nuclear deterrence, the balance of e military terror which is actually preventing war between the great powers. It is simply economic deterrence which is doing so. And of course, the argument made in relationship to China and the United States is that over the last 25 or 30 years, sorts of things that Jonathan and many other China specialists have been writing about, that these two economies have in a sense become interlocked with one another to such a degree, to such a degree that the, the, the idea of conflict of a serious character between the two becomes economically impossible. It would destroy the Chinese economy, it would reduce America's market, 
you wouldn't have that level of global trade and global prosperity which that relationship has created over the last 25 years. Why go against your economic interests? And if we could conceive of America as an American capitalist country, why the hell would an American capitalist country do something to destroy American capitalism? And however we characterize or try to characterize China as a system, and I've never found a characterization of China that really works, but just for the moment, let's just say they're doing a lot of capitalism in China, even with some socialist characteristics or under communist control. There's a huge amount of economic self-interest, therefore, in keeping the relationship stable and, and in the region as well. The fourth reason as to why people argue uh, why great power war in general is unlikely, if not impossible, and war between China and the United States inconceivable, of course, is nuclear weapons. In the last analysis, those appalling things which were invented, in fact, I think were used on this day in Hiroshima on the 6th of August in 1945, so we're at a point of commemoration of what actually happened. The first, first time that nuclear weapons were used, and there was a second time, of course, which followed a few days later over Nagasaki, that was the first and indeed the last time that nuclear weapons were employed. And this was in the context of a barbaric total war, which was the Second World War, to drive Japan finally to the negotiating table, which it did rather successfully. The escalation of nuclear destructiveness, the movement from atomic weapons to hydrogen weapons, the increasing uh, miniaturization of nuclear warheads, the greater accuracy of these warheads, the greater destructive capacity of these warheads, the spread of these nuclear weapons first from America, then to the Soviet Union, from the Soviet Union to the United Kingdom, then to France, and then, of course, finally on to China, and then to, 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 other, to other great powers in the world, or rising powers such as, such as India, latterly, uh, latterly Pakistan. The argument still is that nuclear weapons, however destabilizing they may be in, at one level, at another level, and particularly in the hands of great powers themselves, are so massively destructive, and everybody knows of their destructive capability, that nobody in their right mind, no leader of a country, whether China or the United States, or indeed any other significant great power, would be prepared to use them. They are, in a sense, useless weapons. And they've therefore rendered war, in, 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 the fi in the fundamental sense of great power war, obsolete. You may have all sorts of bumping into each other. You may have a bit of cyber going on. You know, you may have all sorts of other conventional bumping into one another. But nobody's ever going to escalate that to the point because of this simple logic of terror, the logic of mutually assured destruction. So, from taking all those four arguments together in general and and as applied to China and the United States, it seems pretty damned obvious that the answer to the question is, is great power war likely? Will the US go to war with China or China with the United States as two great powers with great economic interest and stakes, both nuclear powers in a post-war era and in a post-Cold War world? The answer must be surely no. Uh, it, it's irrational, it's destructive, it will destroy their systems and has no rational purpose whatsoever. That is what I think people were arguing until a, a few years ago, I think, Jonathan. Now, what, however, is worrying, and I suppose this is where the kind of however part comes in, the but, the next bit, the, on the one hand, but now on the other, yet over the last few years, it seems to me, looking at this uh, relationship and what is being said about this relationship, maybe, I don't know exactly when you would date that, perhaps Jonathan would have some reflections on that, Yet over the last few years, it is not more peace that is being talked about in Asia, but the opposite, i.e., is there a possibility of war? 
So in a way, the logic of my first part of my argument takes us in one direction, but over the last two, three, four, five years, people, significant people, people with influence, policy makers, policy pundits, some mad people, possibly some sane people, have also been talking about the possibility at least, not the inevitability, but the possibility at least, that we should at least be thinking of this at least as a possibility at the end of the day. And we shouldn't be, in a sense, lulled into a full sense of security by the kinds of arguments which I have so far put forward to you here this evening. Let me just take uh, writings of a colleague of mine here at the, at the LSE. I, I only cite colleagues from the LSE. It, it pays off in the end. Um, and uh, if, you, if you're nice to them, uh, on, on the assumption that they'll be nice to you. It doesn't always work, I found out, by the way. Uh, my colleague Christopher Coker has uh, just written a couple of books, and the, the re most recent book he's done with Oxford University Press, I think published not very long ago, uh, t talks about the probability-improbability of war, particularly uh, between China and the United States. Now, what, what Christopher Coker says from the IR department is something which goes very quickly like this. It is not inevitable but it's not impossible now. That's his argument. It's not inevitable, but it's not impossible to even think about it. It's not unthinkable. That's the term he uses, Jonathan. It is what he calls a possibility inherent in the present. Indeed, what Christopher argues in a really brilliant book is that the greatest danger we now face is to assume that war would never happen and could never happen. That makes it, in his view, more likely Moreover, says Christopher Coker, even though the USA and China say they do not want war, to quote him, they are still preparing for it. So you have this paradox of two great powers saying they don't want it, they're not planning for it, they don't want it to happen, but guess what? There's a lot of preparation going on as if it at least is a possibility. There's one kind of pretty rational voice in that debate today. Another equally rational and powerful voice in that debate is my old friend from the University of Chicago, uh, John Mearsheimer. John has written profoundly and at great length over a long and distinguished career about international relations from a strongly realist perspective. Uh, John is no warmonger, believe me, quite the opposite. He served in the military after all, and you find that people in the military are the least, least inclined to want to go to war because they who usually get killed, not the politicians. And John, now, of course, a, a, a prestigious professor in the University of Chicago, arrives at a similar, although not entirely identical, position to Christopher Coker. Although it's a slightly bleak conclusion. And, and what, what, what Mearsheimer argues, in a sense, is the kind of classical IR argument. What happens when a great power rises? It's the oldest problem in the world. It's the longest great power conundrum. And John arrives at the pretty standard realist conclusion that when great powers rise, they keep rising. <laughs> they don't want to stop. In other words, once you start going up, you don't want to stop at some point and just cut it off. In other words, security is not the name of the game. Hegemony is. Regional hegemony is. In other words, there's a kind of logic of rising powers. They can't just look for security and then just stop their next stage has to move on. He calls it a, the theory, it's called the theory of offensive realism. 
Now, he thinks this is not because China is communist. It's not because China is where China is. It's not because of the region it happens to be in. He thinks it's just in the logic of great power themselves. It has happened in the past, and there's no reason to believe it won't happen now as a rising power like China, in his view, seeks regional hegemony and seeks to push, therefore, the other hegemon in the region out of Asia. And who is the other hegemon in the, in the region? Well, it isn't Singapore. It's the United States of America. So in other words, what he says here, there's a tragedy. There's a tragedy unfolding. He actually uses the term the tragedy of great power politics. In the tragic moment of one great power rising and seeking regional hegemony, in this case China, it will inevitably run into the resistance of the hegemon called the United States, which will not accept, which will not accept, in his view, either China regional hegemony for Asia and will certainly not accept China pushing the United States out of Asia. Therefore, this is bound to lead, in his view, and it's, it's partly to do with what's happening in Asia, but it's a more general theory of uh, transition of great powers. This leads inevitably to greater security competition. War is not inevitable, but certainly it's a real possibility. And that kind of mere shimian argument is one that takes, is actually now today is fairly popular in, in, in the United States. And it's certainly been read and thought about a lot in China itself, where I know John has, been, has lectured over several years. The final bit of evidence I've got here, if it is evidence, I'm not sure if the internet is evidence for anything other than, you know, a, a rather sad social life. Um, <laughs> but I thought, well, I'd better get a few facts in here because, after all, that's what I'm supposed to do. Um, and I just tapped in US-China and then put in those three little letters, war, question mark, and then whoosh, you know, one damn thing after another. And this is what, it ca what came out of, about this. Whole list of items there talking about not how important trade is, not how important peace is, not how important cooperation is, not how important cooperative relations are between the two, but talking about the possibility of war. It's all out there on the blog. You know, if the, if the internet is, is, is the cause of anything, you could say it could be the cause of World War III, I don't know. But here we go. One blog said, quote, it was inevitable unless the USA conceded to China in the South China Seas. The whole question of South China Seas, as you know, has become a very contentious issue. That comes out on the 26th of May of this year. Another piece said both sides do not want war. Neither side could afford a war, but both sides are making commitments in the region from which they cannot back down. And it's those commitments, particularly U.S. commitments to its various allies in Asia, particularly Japan and South, South Korea and maybe Taiwan, this could lead to conflict, even if you're not looking for one. The same article also talked about the growing possibility of accidental war, where insecurity grows, you have greater possibility of accidents happening. A third article pointed to, it didn't know quite if it was 12 or 10 signs, it seemed quite difficult, I, couldn't quite, I got so bored with the article I stopped reading it, it was either 12 or 10 signs that the U.S. and China are moving towards war. And on July 2015, Hugh White, a, a very influential writer, and I think a very interesting writer on the U.S.-China relationship, he's an Australian, he actually wrote a, an article in National Interest, in, and the question he asked, and was the title of the article, was, he said, if America went to war with China, if, note, not when, if America went to war with China, what would Washington's allies do? Well, but even by asking the question, you're kind of posing it as a possibility. Even fiction writers have got in on the act, I've noticed, Jonathan, including a man called Peter Singer, 
who has written what is called a new techno-thriller, which probably means it's awful, <laughs> with the great title Ghost Fleet, a novel of the next world war. And it tells the reader how it will happen. In June, it seems he was also giving a lecture on the same to US military officials, which I find seriously worrying. I mean, after all, if US military officials are now reading fiction, we are really in trouble. <coughs> so there we have it. There we have it. I'm setting out the, the kind of the, the picture. On the one hand, a set of arguments about the impossibility about great power war in the modern era, yet an accumulation of new arguments whether from serious people like Christopher Coker or John Mearsheimer or looking on the internet, that thinks it's a real possibility. Not because anybody desires it, but it will become the outcome of miscalculation and all the rest. And in this regard, by the way, and I'll finish very soon, in this regard, last year, of course, we were commemorating the First World War, 1914-2014. And it's very interesting how parallels and historical analogies are drawn between then and now. And quite a lot of writers who are specialists on World War I, Margaret Macmillan may be the most significant, but there were others, who kind of said, well, how did World War I begin? Did anybody really want it? And their answer is not really. How did it therefore occur because of miscalculation, misperception, misunderstanding, and growing mutual mistrust, which led in the end to people making miscalculations about others' intentions? And if one takes that kind of view then one can see why many people today would therefore think that the possibility, though not the inevitability of such a conflict, is, 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 is a reality that one must discuss. And if one does not even discuss it, and this is the argument I think put forward by Chris Coker, which is a significant one, then you're kind of living in a fool's paradise. Better to think about the possibility of the worst, and by doing so you might avoid it. It's kind of the old logic of Cold War. Think the worst, therefore you can avoid the worst. Think that the worst could happen and then there's at least a real working and fighting chance you may be able to avoid the worst. The worst thing to do is just think the peace is inevitable. You know, just to live in a la-la liberal land of holding hands around the campfire and seeing kumbaya will not deal with the kinds of problems we're facing here today. I won't come down to any conclusions. I think... We are in a difficult situation. I think we have realistically to appreciate the situation we're in. We need to avoid alarmism. We did avoid alarmism through large parts of the Cold War. And actually, in the end, we got through it. I think also, unlike John Mearsheimer, I don't think there's an iron logic of great powers rising or declining in the case of the United States, which leads inevitably. In other words, I don't think history necessarily has to repeat itself. I think the world has changed in significant ways, which go way beyond where we were before the First or even indeed before the Second World War. Yet, and I conclude here, we should not be complacent. There are serious issues, outstanding, which must be addressed sooner rather than later. Or we could find ourselves in a much more dangerous place than where we are today. Maybe the best way of avoiding this probable or improbable, likely or unlikely war, is by thinking that it is at least a possibility. By thinking about it being a possibility, that may be the best way to avoid it. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, Mick, and thank you for coming in on uh, such a fine and beautiful day. You could have made the most of the rare English summer, and you've come to speak to us, hear us instead. Uh, perhaps in a slightly depressing uh, 
way. I've, uh, just to fill up, I've written eight books uh, on China now. Uh, as Mick said, one of them is a kind of doorstopper of uh, the penguin history of modern China. Uh, I've written another book, which is the shortest book I've ever written, and therefore I'm promoting it here, Will China Dominate the 21st Century, which is, uh, came out uh, 18 months ago and is really an answer to the people who think uh, that China will inevitably rule the world. Uh, my answer is no, China will not rule the 21st century. On the other hand, I think uh, that it is extremely important to uh, take proper attention to factors which Mick uh, referred to, but which I'd like to just develop um, a little more, in that I think the world has changed, and particularly the world has changed as far as China is concerned, and in particular as far as the relationship between Washington and Beijing uh, is concerned. After uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, won the power struggle following the death of Mao uh, at the end of the 1970s, there was a kind of benign feeling around in the world that uh, China had finally got it, that it was going to move uh, into economic growth, and this was going to be welcome to the rest of the world because it produced a lot of cheap goods which kept down uh, inflation and was even more welcome to uh, the United States when the Chinese started recycling the profits uh, from the sales uh, of its goods into U.S. treasuries. And you can make the argument that actually it was China which financed the war in Iraq. Without that money, the Bush administration would have been in some trouble. Uh, I don't say directly, but... Uh, so China seemed benign, and despite... Uh, what happened uh, in Tiananmen Square uh, on June the 4th, uh, 1989, there was still this feeling that China was uh, playing a positive role in a world still defined very largely by the United States uh, and by Washington. And that as a result of the economic growth and development of China, it would somehow become, quote, more like us. Uh, not to drop names, but when I was uh, editing the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong, uh, had dinner with Bill Clinton, who was coming back uh, from China, and he made the argument, this was the end of the 1990s, just before the turn of the century, that everybody had to encourage the economic development of China because that would produce a middle class, which would then agitate for Western-style democratic values. And this plays back to an old American thing, which I think you could say was so uh, in 1945, um, a difficulty for the United States in understanding why people aren't more like them. Why don't they automatically see the, the virtue of American values and adopt them? Well, into the new century... Uh, China did develop, its middle class developed, which Clinton had referred to, but its middle class, far from agitating for democracy and, quote, uh, democratic values, was exactly the opposite. It was a status quo uh, element in society because it was doing very nicely out of the present situation. And if you're uh, in a Shanghai family uh, with maybe one and a half cars, a nice flat, you can afford private health care, private education, you have three holidays uh, abroad every year, the last thing you want is for 700 million poor people to get the vote and be able to influence policy. You are very well looked after. I won't go into it. There are reasons why that deal is falling to bits uh, at the moment, largely for, because of the, the, the development of Chinese society. But during those years still, let us say the first decade of this century, China very largely applied Deng Xiaoping's famous doctrine, hide your brilliance and bide your time. 
i.e. go on building up material wealth of China, but don't frighten the rest of the world for the moment. I think you asked for a date when things changed in China. They were changing to some extent around 2010. But the real change has come since Xi Jinping became uh, General Secretary of the Communist Party and then State President uh, at the end of 2012. And she has now accumulated an absolutely extraordinary amount of power in China. He has seven top jobs, one for each day of the week. Um, Four of them he created for himself which we know about, and probably four or five other jobs that we don't know about in the Politburo Standing Committee uh, of the Communist Party. He is a real power player. He's the biggest power player in the world today, I think, without any doubt. And part of that is, of course, domestic, the anti-corruption campaign and everything else that uh, you'll be familiar with. But it was also to rejuvenate China as a global power. And he has asserted Chinese political influence, geopolitical influence, in a way that uh, we've never really seen um, from China, even under the empire, when by and large uh, imperial domain and interests in China were, uh, of China were very much the tributary state and were regionalized there. Now she wants to be a global player. He wants China to be not dominating the world, that's beyond, I think the Chinese know that's beyond him, but to be recognized as equal number one in the world. And the danger, and this is where we come to the risk factor, which I do think is increasing and has increased, is that this is taking a lot of different forms. It's taking, obviously, uh, the push out into the South uh, China Sea with uh, the nine-dash line, although I've found recently that actually a tenth dash has been uh, added to it, which takes it round Taiwan. It's the confrontation with Japan and with a much more assertive Japan, of course, under Abe uh, than was previously the case. It's the going out using the three trillion, uh, four trillion of foreign exchange reserves to basically buy friends and influence in the world. Pakistan, you want 42 billion? Here it is. Uh, Brazil, you're in trouble. Here's 55 billion for you. It's using the money uh, to spread uh, Chinese uh, influence and impact there. I mean, what will come of all this, we can't be entirely sure, and it serves a purpose in that quite a lot of the money will be used for contracts for Chinese companies which haven't got enough work uh, at home. But there undoubtedly is this change in uh, China's uh, both regional and global position. You've had, for instance, you may have noticed this summer, uh, the formation of the um, Asian Infrastructure Investment Bank, the AIB, and the BRICS Bank, both with capital of about $100 billion to begin with, most of which is supported by China. You've got the Silk Road Funds, another $100 billion. You've got the China Development Bank, large amounts of money being put into that. All this is China going out, China asserting itself. Now, There's nothing abnormal in this. I'm not particularly, uh, I don't lie awake uh, worrying about this any more than I do of, you know, the Chinese um, uh, funding property development on the south bank uh, of the Thames, where wonderfully the chairman of uh, Dalian Wanda, which is financing that, said, I love London, the air's so clean and the land's so cheap, Uh, which, (laughs) take it as you wish. (laughs) This is perfectly normal for China to go out to use its money rather than getting zero interest from treasury bonds in the States. Of course, you know, you put your money elsewhere where you can get a better return for it. The worry, my, my, the risk factor in this is that I don't think the, the rest of the world, and particularly the United States, has really woken up 
to this change in the equilibrium that has taken place. There is still the assumption that China can be contained through what's called the island chain running from the big US base in Okinawa through Taiwan down to the Philippines. Uh, there's still the assumption that what Nick, uh, Mick referred to as you know, the, the mutually assured destruction that would come economically if there was a war, that that will hold uh, China back. Uh, it will, of course, up to a, to a large extent, but that may no longer be the main driving force uh, in policy, particularly as the economy slows and as China's real concern must be with the domestic situation, the need for domestic reform and how you can push through domestic reform and the liberalization that comes with it while maintaining uh, the monopoly power of the Communist Party, which is a huge uh, problem. And if one had to have a, a phrase, I think, for describing China at the moment, Mick, I would say it is Leninist capitalism. And since that is a contradiction in terms, uh, or should be a contradiction in terms, you can see the dangers of this. There is the danger of nationalism, which uh, is certainly rising, uh, particularly in East Asia. There is, maybe it's only a 10% risk, but it's a risk that's there, that the Chinese economy may go not into free fall, but uh, the print, the official print uh, of growth, which is 7%, which I don't think anybody would really accept. It's probably around 5.56 at the moment. But if that really falls uh, very seriously, um, partly as a result of the difficulty of doing reform within the communist system, uh, that uh, a recourse to nationalism by Xi Jinping could be uh, a very attractive uh, course. We've seen that in the past. The PLA, uh, we're told that Xi Jinping, when he took over, and he's chairman of the Central Military Commission, of course, that he was horrified by the weak state of the People's Liberation Army. It may be the biggest standing army in the world, but uh, it was corrupt, inefficient, uh, generals uh, concentrated on selling promotions rather than uh, getting battle ready. He's, he's reformed the PLA enormously. It's still way behind the US, and a straightforward frontal war in Asia would be mad uh, indeed, but it's developing all kinds of asymmetrical weapons, submarines, rockets, satellites, all kinds of other things, plus cyber uh, espionage, which we talked about, which are endlessly niggling and um, causing uh, confrontations that are, are gen have been, generally have been uh, contained so far. The danger is that some of them might escalate uh, out of control. You'll remember at the beginning of the century when an American spy plane, and the Americans run the spy planes up and down the, the island chain the whole time. You can see why some Chinese talk about Cold War-style containment. Um, one of those came too close to a Chinese fighter or the other way around. Uh, the fighter crashed and the American plane came down on Hainan Island. And that was very quickly dealt with. Jiangxi Min calmed it down instantly. I just wonder that if you had a similar confrontation off uh, the islands, the Senkaku Dayu Islands, between Japanese and Chinese forces at the moment, whether Abe on the one hand and Xi Jinping on the other would be quite so conciliatory, because they're both playing to domestic audiences, uh, to which they may think nationalism uh, will be a plus point on their side. On the other hand, you have the United States, as Mick said, it is very 
the mood in the U.S., and I'm assuming here that Donald Trump doesn't get elected to the White House, um, <laughs> is, is very let's keep out of foreign entanglements. It's, it's a bit like maybe Britain in 1938, to push it really, perhaps too far, but there is that element. The element, the, the feeling we've become over, overextended, um, and let's look after our own knitting uh, now. And there's certainly the perception in China particularly, obviously, among the more forceful military and strategic thinkers, that the U.S. is on the decline. The U.S. is weakening, and China just can step in, uh, and at some point, and I don't know when this would be, I don't know what it would be over, can have a trial of strength with Washington, uh, which, uh, uh, which it could come out on top of. Now, I don't know whether, like me, I don't know whether any of this is going to happen, but I think the risk factor has gone up. If you'd asked me if we'd been sitting here ten years ago, five years ago even, I'd have taken the complacency uh, point of view and said, this is impossible, there are so many factors against it, 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 it's not going to happen. Where we are now is that I think the risk factor is there. You've also got the China-Russia relationship, which has grown much, much closer recently, and who knows you know, what, 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 what is going to happen there, and that could be sensitive uh, in lots, lots of other areas. You've got the China-Pakistan relationship getting in there, potentially clashes with India, with, of course, the Himalayan frontier um, still disputed. So there are a great, great number of these uh, potential flashpoints, I think, uh, around the world, either straightforwardly territorial military, as that is known, or in terms of influence. I mean, if China is going to invest and lend uh, about $60 billion to Brazil, what does that say about influence within Latin America? And China will probably... They're not doing it out of the goodness of their heart. They'll want something back. Okay, they had a bad time in Venezuela, but they'll want something back for that. Um, In Southeast Asia, you're going to have a tremendous... Uh, battle for influence between Japan and China, which is already uh, starting. So you can say, on the one hand, why would China have any interest in going to war? And why would the United States have any interest in going to war? And of course, you can say, objectively, none of them do have any interest in that. The danger is that it may be that they will each side, and particularly I must say it's China here, as the rising power, will see it in its interests as being that people think it might go to war. I, the threat is more important uh, than uh, the potential threat is greater than uh, the reality, I think. And that, uh, for me, creates a dangerous, a more dangerous situation than we would have had and that we've been used to. And when you take in particular the fulcrum of this, which is Southeast Asia and, well, the whole of East Asia, let's say, with Japan, there is no organization that can bring warring parties together. There's no... The only strategic umbrella for the region is the United States. And if push came to shove, to put it very crudely, does America want to go to war for Taiwan? Uh, And if the DPP wins the presidential election, as they will next year, we could have tension there. On all these things, China will be pushing, which is entirely normal in great power politics. My worry is that the United States, to begin with, and everybody else concerned with the region and the world in general, hasn't quite realized how dangerous this situation could become. So from that point of view, I'd agree with you. I think complacency is the greatest enemy. Thank you.
Okay. Um, well, I think why don't we just go straight into uh, questions and we'll try and provide any, any answers. Who wants to go first? Anybody want to go first? No? Complete. There's a chap over here in yellow. Uh, anybody up the top there? Uh, uh, over here, there's a girl over here, yeah? Okay, if anyone wants to leave, you could leave. Yeah, down here, down here. Come down here, come down. Okay, if you could leave quietly, guys, please. Thanks. So we can just get on. Yeah, 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 yeah. Thanks. Okay, uh, have you got a... Uh, we'll take two together. One down here and uh, the girl up there. Yeah, please. Uh, Professor Fenby, If you, you could please be quiet on the way out, please. Thank you very much. You mentioned something about the, um, the, the so-called deal between the, the middle class and the working class, I guess you would call it. Uh, can, you said it was breaking down. Um, in recent years, you could expand on that, please? Okay, just to repeat, could, maybe you didn't hear it because of the noise going on. The, 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 the point is really it's a question to Jonathan about Jonathan saying that the social contract, the deal between the party leadership and the working class and the middle, middle, class, class, middle, class. middle class in particular may be beginning to break down. And could you elucidate on that particular point? And the question from up here, yeah, on, on the balcony, yeah, please. Yeah. Yeah, so I've been reading a lot about um, China's new investment in areas of Africa, most especially in the Congo. Um, would it be right to assume that this is a form of neo-imperialism, or how should we interpret this? Thanks. Okay, that's two. One on the middle class. That's, that's your area. Well, and I'll do neo-colonialism. <laughs> oh, you can do it too. Uh, I could go on about this for a long time, but I do. Basically, I mean, this is obviously generalizing. This is the first time in Chinese history that you've had a middle class. It never existed really in the past there. Uh, as a result of growth, an urban middle class grew up in the 1990s, really, 2000s, uh, for whom, I think it's a broad generalization, you could say that material improvement, material advancement was the key to everything. You can understand that. Their those, that group's children, the second generation urban middle class, in a sense, they've become used to material, improved material standards. Of course, you know, they want to be, everybody wants money, and so on and so on, so they don't want to go back and live uh, as their grandparents or pre-grandparents did. But for them, issues, what I call quality of life issues, like air pollution, like water pollution, like soil pollution, 10% of Chinese land is unsafe to, to grow crops on. Food safety, which strikes you the whole time, you know, the uh, abysmal of the standards, putrid meat in uh, sausages, exploding watermelons, anything else you like. Oh, that was an extraordinary story. Oh, <laughs> there, there. And the question of the, the absence, and I may be being too Western here, but I think it does count, the uh, absence of the rule of law there, of external accountability. Xi Jinping is pushing legal reform, but this is to make the law a more effective instrument of government, uh, governance. And when you have that along with social media. Okay, most social media is chit-chat. You know, I saw your boyfriend out with another girl last night. I just had a nice dish of congee. Have you seen this film? And so on and so on. But the mere fact that people can communicate freely, more or less freely, despite the cyber cops, in a system where all orthodox information exchange is controlled by the party or, the, or the, the government is an enormous change. And when you've got 100 million foreign visits a year by Chinese, this changes, I think, the, the attitude. And when you have Xi Jinping uh, coming out with, and I'll be finished with two sentences here, coming out with a lot of old Maoist language, you've got the class warfare coming uh, in again. You've got warning against 
uh, terrible Western values, such as uh, freedom of speech, which must be, uh, and rule of law, which must be fought against. I think there is a, a real uh, confrontation here, mm. uh, which, when you've got growth falling off in China, probably quite seriously in the next 18 months, creates a real problem here for the middle class more than for the urban and rural working classes. Yeah, thanks. That's great. On the, on the second question about Africa, is it neo-colonialism, neo-imperialism? Is, it, is basically China doing what the British and the French used to do? Uh, well, the answer, very bluntly, I, don't, I think it's no. Uh, I think the relationship between China and the independent sovereign African states, which they are, which they weren't under the British, obviously. Did you not notice we had an empire? Um, you know, clearly, uh, you know, that's what we call it. That's what we call it, you know. And, 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 and you know, unlike the Americans, we didn't apologize for it either, you know. Um, so in that sense, it's not, it's not colonial. And that's why you kind of used, you added the neo bit, you know, to kind of, you know, it, it's not really colonial, but it's neo, whatever that means. So I don't think it's like that. On the other hand, China is a great power. And China does what all great powers have done in the past. If it's got money, it's got influence, guess what? It goes out, as Jonathan was describing when he was saying about China going out. And one of the places that China has gone out is clearly into to Africa in pretty in a pretty serious way, uh, with a lot of money, with a lot of unconditional loans, very important, unlike the damn West who comes along and says, how about some good governments, how about some human rights, and how about stop killing people down there and wherever, you know, China just says, well, here's your money, and uh, can we have your vote at the UN next year? Yeah. Although, <laughs> that, that, is no, that is never said. Now, I know China says we are not like the West, and actually China is not like the West, for good or ill. But nonetheless, it is influence, it is power, it's what great powers do. And I think the, the, the current figure, Jonathan, is there's about a million, million people from China, uh, from PRC, who now work and are entrepreneurs in Africa. You know, mm. It also, by the way, pushed very hard, just on the Africa question, it pushed very hard in the year 2010 for South Africa to become the fifth member of the BRICS. And that was a significant diplomatic, and by the way, the biggest trade relation between African countries is obviously going to be with South Africa, because South Africa is about one quarter of uh, sub-Saharan GDP. So not surprising, South Africa became the brick, and it's significant. But it's more than just that. You can see this in Addis Ababa, you can see it in Zambia, you can see it in, um, in countries right, at, right, at, right across, across Africa. It is a factor, there's no question. And uh, an article was, it's a really good article the other day, I can't remember by whom, it, you don't want to, whether you want to call it inner colonialism, i just leave that to you to decide, whatever word you want to use to describe it. But it is influence. There's no question. And it wasn't something that was there 10 years ago or 15 years ago. Um, now, that we all know many Africans have their resentments. There's all sorts of problems in that relationship. We, we, we hear about it quite a lot, but nonetheless, that is a relationship. And African elites are very keen on this relationship. And, and one of the things it has done, and this was the, the purpose of the article, I, who's author I can't remember very quickly but this is what he argued and it seemed to me to be a good argument maybe Jonathan you, you may or may not agree with this but he said that because China is now a factor in the diplomatic and economic relations of African states this in a sense does limit the West it does reduce the West's ability whether it's the EU or the United States or Canada or whoever you know to influence the internal affairs of Africa, and it kind of gets back, this is perfectly legitimate, this is actually in the nature of great power politics, China's not doing, it's not doing anything that nobody, other great power has done in the past, in fact, it's behaving just 
say like the British, um, or even maybe like the Americas, all great powers do the same. And now, well, China may want to put a gloss on that and say, well, we're doing it for non-selfish reasons, but nobody believes that. Uh, least of all the Chinese leadership, I would imagine. They're doing it for their purposes. But if it is reducing, this is my point, if it is reducing Western influence, if it's making life more difficult for Western states and Western powers in terms of getting the policy outcomes they want in conditionality and all the rest, then it does come back to your point. It is changing the world equilibrium. It is changing the world equilibrium, and that changes in a direction which is not favorable to the West. And that will add, it seems to me, to that insecurity which you, you yep. were talking about. And I yes. think that, that's the way I, I kind of answer that particular question. Jonathan, didn't you no, I just add anything add to that? No, I just a couple of sentences on that. With Africa, of course, this is all part of the resources game. Yeah. Uh, China, as we say, is people rich and resources poor. Uh, to fuel its, although its growth is slowing, and that's had a big effect, of course, on world commodities, uh, and China's doing very nicely with low oil prices and low iron ore prices and so on. But the basic driver for China is to ensure that it has the supply of iron ore, of copper, of oil, of everything else that it needs. And interestingly, China, in the last four or five years, in a sense, it's done Africa. Uh, And it's now turning to uh, investments in Australia uh, for iron ore and coal uh, and in Latin America Mm. uh, for uh, various minerals. It's trying to diversify itself. But this then brings in a source of of Chinese concern about stability, which is called the Malacca Straits, because all this stuff comes through the Malacca Straits. And uh, going back to the 90s, I remember a Chinese Chinese official saying to me uh, after dinner, he was slightly drunk one night. You were sober, right? I was completely sober. Yeah, of course. Um, (laughs) I'll be drinking drinking orange juice upstairs. Um, But... uh, (laughs) He said, imagine what would happen if a terrorist group with a powerful bomb took control of the Malacca Straits. Think what it would do to our inputs of uh, raw materials. He didn't mean that at all, of course. What he meant, imagine what would happen if the U.S. fleet uh, blockaded the Malacca Straits. And that is a great fear. And that is why, for instance, China is building a big port in Pakistan so that it can get stuff uh, straight up to Xinjiang, which is another story, may not be the best destination. Um, but all these things are changing the balance. Mm. And if I'm looking, if I'm being optimistic, they're bringing a lot of infrastructure work, a lot of development to countries that need it. Mm. If I'm being pessimistic, they are increasing the number of potential flashpoints mm. uh, around the world. Um, and those are the risks yep. we have to take into account. Great. Okay. Uh, there's a question down here. And there's a question, girl right at the back. So, tap in blue, and a lady, yeah, go there, yeah, great. Okay, uh, you, uh, use the mic, please, and oh, also sorry. switch it on. It helps. That's fine. How important is it for Chinese foreign policy, especially with regards to security and sea trade routes, as uh, Professor Fembi just said, how important is it to secure control to Taiwan, uh, over Taiwan? Now, which question was it on sea trade routes or Taiwan? Uh, both. both. How both. Im- I, I'm saying how important is it to, sec- let's say, secure control of Taiwan, especially with regards ah. to security and yeah. sea trade routes? Okay. Maybe they're two separate issues, but I get yeah, your point. Yeah, yeah. and there's, uh, where was the other person? Yeah, it's here. Yeah, hi. 
Um, I have two questions as well. Right. Uh, so in terms okay. of um, um, South China Sea, because yeah. uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping has been calling, like, um, we have to coexist in this area. So first, uh, do you think China and the U.S. and, like, all those powers can coexist in that area? Mm. And also, if someday there's a war, who's going to be the one who picks up the war the first? Who starts it? Who yeah. starts it? Yeah. All right. What do you okay. think? Yeah. Okay. Who starts it? Um, uh, uh, Britain, um, basically. <laughs> But you know, we start every war. We start, we start all the wars. Yeah, no, we finish them off, yeah. In including the Australian cricket team, which I hear is uh, crying oh, into its orange juice at this very minute. Very good. cricket out. Yeah, I couldn't, yeah. I'm sorry, I couldn't do that one. Uh, sea trade routes. Um, why don't you go first and I'll pick up anything you well, leave behind. No, the sea I've got trade, a few ideas on that. No, I mean, just simply, you know, my last answer is uh, that it is extremely important, sea trade routes. They're trying to, China's trying to develop... Uh, land routes by railway to Europe, uh, to Rotterdam, through Russia, but it's yeah. the amount that can, can be carried is tiny compared with yeah. uh, sea routes. Uh, Taiwan is um, not important from that point of view. Uh, Taiwan is important because having got back Hong Kong and Macau, obviously the PRC wants to get back Taiwan, and the probability is that the DPP party will win the presidency uh, next year, and we'll have a real. We, we may have a. I would not necessarily a Taiwan Straits crisis, but certainly confrontation will go up. And the latest news, and as always with these military things, you never know if it's true or people are just putting the frighteners on. But uh, the latest rumours from. Uh, Beijing, has, the PLA has got a new class of super sophisticated uh, missiles which can sink aircraft carriers, i.e. they're saying to the Americans, don't do what you did in 1996 and come into the strait. Yeah. Very, very quickly, um, can they coexist? Well, whether in South China Sea or more generally, the truth of the matter is the United States and China having... You, know, you keep talking conflict, conflict, possible war, potential for war, and all the rest of it. There's so many areas where the United States and China cooperate. You know, I mean, this, in, in this kind of, it's, it's good to get the headlines. Everybody likes a war, particularly IR lecturers. You know, war keeps us employed. Peace is boring. So it's not surprising that when I went to the website, you know, what did I find? Did I, find, I couldn't find the word peace anywhere, but I, or cooperation, because it's dull. You know, but you find lots of things about war, inevitability, scenarios for war, submarine war, accidental war, blah, blah, blah. It kind of sells, it sells books, it kind of looks much more interesting. Um, and in many, many areas, not just about the South China Seas, the truth of the matter is that since Richard Nixon, the most appalling human being that I think the United States has ever invented, um, when, when, when Tricky Dicky and, and Henry Herr Kissinger, that is, you know, did the, did the brilliant maneuver which brought about the greatest deal in, in diplomatic history, I think, which actually ended the Cold War in Asia to a very large degree before the Cold War ended in Europe uh, 20 years later, that actually was the beginning of a process of deep cooperation. It began on cooperation against the Soviet Union. It then began cooperation on a whole bunch of other issues. There's cooperation on trade. There's cooperation over North Korea. There's cooperation on global warming. You know, the U.S. and Chinese officials are meeting daily and weekly and monthly. So when we kind of have this debate this evening on this particular, you know, wonderful, <laughs> horrible topic, you know, let's not forget that you've, you could write a completely different kind of scenario, completely different kind of have a completely different kind of debate, which is about how much cooperation. The problem about doing that, only 20 people would have turned up for the lecture tonight. 
Um, get the word war in Yeah, yeah, once you get the word war in there, you know, you flock in the thousands. That's wonderful. So in many, many areas, the United States and China are coexisting. I mean, or, or co even more, more actively cooperating. You know, 220,000 Chinese students can't be wrong. They study in U.S. universities. That's a form of cooperation. Many of the other areas of cooperation which you, you touched on uh, as, uh, as well. Including, if I may say, so that while Xi Jinping warns against Western values, warns Chinese universities and educators against falling yeah. for the Western trap, where did his daughter to go? Surely not. Harvard. <gasps> oh no, God, I could have sent to the LSE, got a much better education. Um, under a pseudonym. Under a pseudonym, yeah, that's right. And by the way, 10% of our students here are from the PRC, which is very good. Uh, so the second thing about who starts it, I mean, actually, in a way, it, it, if we get to that point, to be frank, it, it isn't going to matter much. I mean, who starts it? I mean, historians will come along later on and find out who started it or who to blame. I mean, this is what historians do at the time. It won't matter. I mean, who's going to sit there when the, you know, when, when, when the, when the balloon goes up? Well, you start, I start. Everybody will blame each other. I mean, the, the, the really fundamental question, it seems to me, is not the question of who starts it, but under what circumstances and where, where, in what situation an accidental war sure. might, might occur. And that's what we've really, really got to address. And I just want to say two, two quick things, which I didn't say in my in my comments. It seems to me there are two, two really fundamental questions and problems which we didn't deal with, I didn't deal with anyway. One is, is about perceptions and misperceptions, because I think this is really, really, really important. And you touched on it, Jonathan, and I'll just briefly make my own. The worst thing any country can do, uh, and this is true of China, and it was true of Japan many, many years ago in a very different world, of course, but the worst thing anybody can do is underestimate the United States. Uh, or believe the United States in decline, or because the United States didn't commit itself to Syria, or because of Afghanistan, or because of Iraq, or because the American people are more interested in infrastructure and bridges and their health system than they are in foreign policy, or because Americans don't even know where the rest of the world is, therefore Amer Amer America's going home. You know, the real danger, I mean, I'm, seriously, this is a very serious point, by the way. It's actually a, a perception that the United States no longer has it or the ability or the capacity or the desire or the will to defend its fundamental interest in Asia. It's mis it's, it, it, that is really, really dangerous. And, Jonathan, you touched on this. I think this is a very grave danger at the moment. Misunderstanding of the United States, because at the moment, temporarily, it, seemed in, it seems in a weakened retreating position. It won't be like that forever. It won't be like that forever, particularly if it thinks its core interests are, are being threatened. The, the, other, the other question you touched on, and I think maybe I'll just add to this very, very quickly, is the question there's no overriding security architecture for the region. I mean, you know, the great... It, Asia is Asia. It's not a kind of... A, it's not a Europe out there. We're not going to get an EU. There is no European Union framework for Asia. There is, in the end, no NATO for Asia, whoever would, and who would dominate it anyway. You know, and the really big question, it seems to me, and this is true for all Asia, all countries in Asia, including Japan, is when are people in the region going to sit down, work out a deal to create a security framework which incorporates both security questions and economic questions. Because at the moment, what happens, as we damn well know, every time there's a security question for Japan or Taiwan or South Korea or whatever, what do you do? You pick up the phone and you want an American voice at the end of it. Hi, Uncle Sam, we love you. Please can you tilt in our direction? And when the US comes back in again, what does that do? It reinforces 
senses in China of a sense of insecurity and being surrounded. So in some senses, part of the problem here is an absence of a deep security architecture. Now, I know the reasons why this doesn't happen. It's because of World War II. It's because of nationalism. It's to do with identity politics, post-colonial states, and all the rest. But until I think people in the region itself seriously address that question, we're going to constantly be coming back to debate this kind of question. Jonathan? Yes, I think, well, just, I'd agree with that. I'd almost... If I can turn your question round, it's, which follows on from that, it's not a question of who starts it. Mm-hmm. It's a question, if something starts accidentally, who's going to stop it yeah, there? Right. And that's the difficulty. As I was saying, I don't, she and Abe, you know, look at them <laughs> at the apex summit. Ooh, I'll shake your hand, you know, you know, as far away as possible. Whereas they should be getting on, and they should be working out uh, something. Like ASEAN, which will have nothing to do with, with security, really. China, which has one treaty ally in the world, which is... North Korea. North Korea, yes. yes, yes. So it, China operates bilaterally all the time, and Xi Jinping certainly... He's going into a big meeting with ASEAN uh, later this month, I think it is, and China is suddenly, miraculously, says it's going to stop the reef building. Okay, but after the meeting's over, it'll start again. There's no doubt. This is playing uh, soft, hard uh, politics the whole time, I think. Okay, I've got a chap down in front who's had his hand up for a while. If you could come down and... um And there's a chap right in the middle here, yeah, if you could, yeah. Yeah, and then I'll pass it around. Just one question, no, no doubles. No, 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 right at the front, right at the front, right in the middle. Put your hand up, mate. You, yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks. It's, she can't see your hand. She, she, she can't read your mind. Start in the front. Okay, the front, um, I have a question regarding the NDB, the New Development Bank. Um, how much relevance uh, would you attribute to this organization in this discussion? Uh, would you rather say it represents a threat to IMF, World Bank, etc., or is it an opportunity? Th- this is the BRIC bank. The bank. This is the yes. BRIC bank you're yes. talking about. The, yep. the bank that was formed yeah, exactly. in July yeah. at the BRIC yeah. su- 7th BRIC Summit. Okay, I can have a go at that if you like, but if you want to add, yeah. And the, the person right in the middle, please, sir. Okay, uh, I have a question uh, regarding the, like, uh, Professor Fenby talked about the flashpoints that might uh, cause uh, serious consequences, like, uh, like, I'm from Japan, and so I'm really uh, serious about, uh, concerned about the possibility of, like, uh, Japan and China becoming really, uh, uh, you know, Dangerous situation regarding Senkaku Islands, and so uh, my question is that: How would uh, China and U.S. Uh, avoid uh, things going in a nasty direction? In relationship, particularly to Japan. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Uh, let me. I'll, I'll, I'll try and answer the first one because I've been lecturing on that this week, and some of my students you can go to sleep now. Um, <laughs> I've been giving like le- le- <laughs> three-hour lecture on the BRICS. And we dealt with the Ju- July discussions in, in Brazil, which set up the two banks, the, the, the basically parallel, parallel to the IMF and parallel to the World Bank. Um, to, to my mind, I, I, I don't see them as a threat in, 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 in any real sense. I mean, for, for a number of reasons. Although I do think it, it raises a question about the changing equilibrium, which you mentioned. So maybe not threat, but a changing equilibrium. I mean, and actually, nothing wrong with that equilibrium changing. The status quo can never last forever any time. And if you try and stop, the, if you try and hang on to the status quo, you will end up with a real danger. The question is how you manage change. That's the really big question for me. And the BRICS, in a sense, are agents of change, in that sense, in the best sense of that word. And we should take it, as I said to my students there, they're all nodding, you're going to get two ones. Um, you know, in, in essence, we've got to manage, manage the question of the BRICS and integrate and pull them in. 
Um, now, but it's a number of reasons why I don't think the BRICS and the BRIC banks, whether you talk about the IMF or the, uh, the, the development bank side of it. Why, why, well, first of all, in terms of their capitalization, their market capitalization, they're pretty small still. They may get bigger at some point in the future, but if you add up various other global banks, and not just the World Bank, but a whole bunch of other banks, it adds up in terms of their capitalization about 1.3, 1.4 trillion. And what we're looking at here is, is, is about 10, less, 7, 8% of that. Um, so first of all, the amounts we're talking about are pretty low. Secondly, as far as I could see, Jonathan, and you know much more about this, these banks are not going to lend money willy-nilly to anybody who comes along. They're going to say, hi, the IMF turned me down, the World Bank thinks I'm rubbish, why don't you give me 50 billion? You know, I just don't think they're going to do that. In other words, they're going to be as tight and as hard-nosed on loans as, as anybody else. And indeed, I think part of the deal on one of the banks is they're never going to lend very much money unless the IMF, in, in a sense, has already you know, recognized them as being at least red, relatively creditworthy and they get their money back. So they'll act like any banker, and we know how bankers act, which isn't very generously. Um, so in some fundamental sense, I don't see it. And I see it as an additional source of funds for development. Yeah, I, I see nothing wrong with that at all. And I think overall, the United States seem to take a fairly benign attitude towards it. London has certainly taken a pretty benign attitude towards it. And I think that's the right way to go. Yet, and we get back to a much more subtle point, which is that it does begin to indicate there's a change in the equilibrium. You know, I mean, the BRICS are more serious than some commentators in the world assume. Martin Wolf, who writes for the Financial Times, simply dismissed them the other, the other year, the other week, saying they're so divided against one another, they're so insignificant, they're so fundamentally different to one another, don't take them seriously. I just think that's wrong. I think, you know, the BRICS have evolved from an acronym in 2001 to being a, an organization with at least some degree of potential for uniting those five countries together around a series of issues, including economic ones. But I, I wouldn't actually see it as a serious threat. That would be my kind of bottom line on it. I think it's a useful addition to world financing. And if China wants to finance development, if it wants to you know, contribute in that way, because it is the biggest contributor, then so be it. And I can see nothing wrong with that. And if I was living in Africa or Latin America or anywhere else in the world, I certainly wouldn't say no. <laughs> I would vote for them in the UN next year. Too, by the way. No, I just add one line, not on the BRICS Bank, but on the uh, Asian uh, Infrastructure Bank. I mean, what was fascinating there as a sign of how things have changed if, as if we needed it, that Washington basically told all its friends, don't join up. And with the exception of Japan, which, of course, wants to run the Asian Development Bank, and that's a problem there, who was the first, you know, through the door? Well, actually, Luxembourg, followed by uh, the Treasury down the road uh, and so on. And 56 countries, I think, have joined up so far there. Uh, but I think the same time with Nick... The attention that's paid to that uh, because of the American opposition and Japanese and the discussion means that it'll be a pretty squeaky clean operation, these and so on. The only question will be really on the environment. I mean, India is hoping that the, the new banks will fund its coal-powered energy, which the World Bank won't get into. So you'll have cases like that, yeah. uh, undoubtedly. But I think it, it's fairly positive. How can, uh, China, China, how can China and the U.S. avoid going to war over Japan? Well, big question. <laughs> uh, sorry, let's write a book about it. Uh, <laughs> I think, uh, actually, I'd say, uh, with all respect and I don't know where you stand in Japanese politics, but I think the policies that Prime Minister Abe is following at the moment actually are probably the biggest dis disturber of uh, an entente 
that in the past, China and, and America could more or less get on with it. You know, okay, the, the Chinese didn't like the fact that there was a big uh, U.S. base in Okinawa, where they didn't like the island chain and so on and so on, mm. but they could live with it, mm. basically. Mm. And this is what I was talking about, about the risks rising, that because Japan... In our, if I'm speaking our base speak, it says we want to be a normal country, i.e. we want to have the right to go to war uh, if we consider it, or at least to back up our allies uh, in war. That obviously worry, a, worries China very much because they see Japan as a surrogate for the United States and U.S. power. And I think from speaking to some American sources, it potentially quite worries the Americans too because they're, they're afraid that they may be pulled into things, mm-hmm. particularly if, say, Japan now is uh, re- reported to be about to launch naval patrols in the South China Sea with the Filipinos. Uh, well, you know, if there's a collision off, mischief, off one of the reefs or something like that, yeah. where does America stand mm, in mm, this? This, mm. this? The whole calculus is becoming much more complicated. And as Mick said, and as I alluded to in my talk, the absence of a forum, overwhelming, uh, uh, if you like, an organization which can say, hey, it's in nobody's interest to have a war. Let's prevent it. Let's George or rather the war war could be worrying if you had you know, runaway public opinion, if you had an economic slump in China which would push it towards nationalism, if Abe feels he needs to flex his muscles, it's all becoming more uh, volatile. Just, I mean, just to add an additional point, uh, and, and you hinted at this earlier on, uh, Jonathan, both sides play domestic politics with this relationship well, uh, a lot. Let's be, we go back to what happened in 2012 with the breakdown of relations between Japan, the attacks on you know, Japanese businesses in China, tourism fell through the floor. It was clearly, I mean, there were real issues, I don't dispute that, but I mean, on the other hand, there were forces inside China who prepared to play the anti-Japan card for domestic reasons. You talked about nationalism, and there's nothing that makes China more nationalist, as we know, is the Japan question, the unresolved history question sure. as well, which, which goes back really to the Second World War, the legacy of history. Yeah. Well, it goes and, back and, and, well, even even before that, indeed, yeah, but the Second World War, I think, made, made the big difference. And then, secondly, how Japan plays this domestically. I mean, it's, you know, it plays into domestic politics as well, and how Abe secures his own domestic sure. political base. So there's a, there's a danger that domestic politics is driving this as much as mm-hmm. foreign policy. We've I, got, I just say sorry, one yeah. second. Uh, yeah, one sure. Anecdote, I was in Beijing when there were the big anti-Japanese demonstrations. It was over a a, a drunken Chinese trawler captain who'd uh, banged into a a Japanese Coast Guard thing. This was, what, 2010, I think? 2012, wasn't it? No, there was an earlier one. Oh, an earlier version. And, I mean, interestingly, the Japanese at that point apologized for the Chinese trawler captain having hit one of their Coast Guard ships. Now you couldn't imagine that happening. The interesting thing was there were all these people out on the streets in Beijing on a Saturday. I was out of town. I came back that evening. I thought, oh, I'll go down to the Japanese embassy and see the crowds on Sunday. The only people there were the police. There were no demonstrators at all, so it can be turned on and off. Spontaneity. Yes. <laughs> Organised spontaneity. Okay, two final questions we'll take and then we'll go. Just up there. Yeah, sorry, where, uh, which one? On the right. Oh, hi, guy. Yeah, there's one coming over to you. Sorry, we're a bit short. We're going we're gonna to go down and up, up and down. So you've got one up and then one down. And, okay, let me see. I'm trying to pick up anybody who doesn't... Uh, take the chap here. So Sorry, yeah, I'm not trying to... We'll talk afterwards anyway. Yeah, okay. Lob it over. No, maybe not. Health and safety. Oh, be careful. Yeah. <laughs> Health and safety. Oh, gosh. Yeah, pass it down. Okay, uh, yeah. This is the last two rounds of questions, then we're going to end. 
after a vast round of applause. Thank you. <laughs> okay, where are we? Uh, uh, yeah, please. Thank you, sir. I appreciate it. Um, I just have a question for you. Who do you think would win? Ah. <laughs> well, may I... Uh, may I... <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. For the Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I, I assume from your accent you're from Canada. <laughs> okay, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll talk about that. Okay, right. I've got an English answer to that. Nobody. Uh, that's what I think. Nobody will win. But anyway. Uh, and the gentleman here um, in the, with the stripes, yes. Suppose we know that to some point there will be war between US and China. And is there any possibility for the other countries outside the U.S., outside China, can play an important role in this relationship, like the U.N., like the EU, or the U.K., the Russia? Yeah, other, that question was about not who will win, but what, what role can other international players, whether ind individual states or regional organizations like the EU, or maybe even ASEAN, play in what, play, playing this down or trying to mediate the relationship? Okay. Great. Uh, on the who will win, uh, <laughs> Jonathan. <coughs> Canada. Canada. Canada will win, yeah. Um, look, I mean, I've got to come out with a kind of, you know, really boring liberal answer. Nobody. You know, in, in, a, in a fundamentally serious sense, the whole point of arguing, as we've discussed tonight, is actually how we can talk this through seriously amongst, you know, serious people who want to avoid this situation because at the end of this nobody wins you know we may say at the end of world war one who won well germany lost and the russian empire lost and the ottoman empire won but you know humanity lost and the system lost you know and it was a, it was a disaster which laid the foundations for world war two who won world war two well we know who won world war two but at the end of that we, we got 70 million dead and a destruction you know, of humanity and all the rest of it. So, it, but in this day and age, let me be really quite honest about it. I think, given given the, the 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 amount of forces there are, maybe in the short, in the very short run, the U.S. would win because it's got overwhelming military superiority. But nonetheless, China has so much military capability. The idea that somehow or another U.S. would win just—I mean, I don't think that was what you were asking. Maybe you were. Uh, if you actually know that nobody's going to win it, then that seems to me an important deterrent. Yeah. Because I don't know what winning really means no, exactly. in these terms. Because yeah. it means Washington drops its hands and says, we agree, China rules the world, we will do everything you say. I can't see that happening. And the Chinese couldn't enforce it. Equally, I can't, couldn't see a U.S.-Japanese force really occupying the whole of China and turning it away from yeah. Leninist bureaucracy, capitalism, yeah. onto some different thing. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's too big. Yeah, yeah, I think the answer to the question is that nobody wins in the disaster. No. disaster. What about the other players, Jonathan? What do you want to say about that? Finally. I'm very dubious that other players have much of a role to play in this. Um, yeah. Japan could have an influence, certainly, but that means probably Japan, in a sense, not playing a role and stepping out of the thing, which may seem ironical uh, here. I think that the other player that could play a role in this eventually, and I know we all, this is always, it's about to be the next great power, rather like Brazil, is India, uh, which, you know, if Modi does represent a change, if there's a real uh, growth in Indian external influence and the internal economy and the, the demographics there, India could play a bigger role, but it, it doesn't really, uh, I mean, China, to be crude, sees India as an um, American friend. 
yeah. and isn't going to work with it very much. And things. So I think this is a question of there are really two players in the, in, in the yeah. game, yeah. Um, and the others may have bits of money in the, in the pot, but uh, yeah. they can't really influence them. And I'm afraid to say, and here we are, in the, the, the home of democracy and the home of the Association of the European Union, but I don't think either the UK or the EU have really got much to play in this. Yeah, I, I, w- I would agree entirely with that. I mean, wh- what is really quite it's striking, it's stri- when one looks at Asia overall since the end of World War II, and as a result of World War II and the way World War II ended in Asia, is that at the end of World War II, in a sense, the United States was, was, was emerging as clearly the dominant player. I mean, it effectively managed and ran Japan for a few years, run, run its constitution. All the security guaranteed to South Korea largely came through the United States. Taiwan is guaranteed by the United States. You know, it, it is a U.S. game. And you could even it say is largely that, a U.S. That, game, and all the other players, it seems to me, are either secondary or irrelevant. You could even say that when Harry Truman decided not to send troops to the Yangtze River at the end of 48, beginning of 49, he decided the fate of China. Yeah. Okay, so this is another good reason not for voting for the Republicans in the next election, is it? I don't know. But I will will leave that out. But anyway, there we go. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Thank you.